Hi everyone, you're listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, where we believe in a Singapore in which its people are proud of the rich and diverse food culture that we have and play an active role in keeping our food heritage alive. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and today I'm joined by researcher and author of The Food of Singapore Malays, Kair Jahari. Born and raised in Kampong Glam, Singapore's Muslim quarter dating back to 1819, Kair's interest in his cultural identity was sparked when he left Singapore for university in California. He says, being away from family and home, you tend to examine and reflect on who you are. I yearn to read in Malay, to taste the food of home, and to rediscover my roots. In 2010, he started doing heritage trails in Kampong Glam as he describes that it wasn't just his childhood home. It was also once upon a time a royal enclave and the cradle of Malay culture in Singapore. Becoming aware of the lack of documentation of Malay cuisine and its relationship with Malay culture, he spent 10 years writing The Food of Singapore Malays. The result is a landmark book that celebrates not just the cuisine of the Malays, but also the people and culture of the Malay archipelago. So I think before we begin, let's talk a little bit about who are the Malays, because I think a lot of people are very confused about um, how, how are they a distinct group from the Indonesians. So can you tell me a little bit about that? So it all depends on how we want to define Malay. Are we defining Malay based, say, on sort of a anthropological sort of definition? Are we looking at Malay as a cultural group? Are we looking at Malay as defined, say, by a constitution like in Malaysia? Yeah. So you know, for the purpose of my book, because the title is the book, The Food of Singapore Malays, so I have to start by defining what is my, what is my working definition? What mm. is Malay? So there are two ways of looking at it, right? We can, we can look at Malays and like one of the many, many, many subgroups in the archipelago, there's the Malay the subgroup and also Malay the umbrella term. That, you know, that's why we have the Malay archipelago. Yeah. So, so in my book, I am looking at Malay that is the looking at the larger definition of Malay. You know, people you kind know, of having the same sort of you know same language, the same uh, kind of food pattern, having the same sort of a way of dressing up. I'm looking at that that uh, overarching mm. definition of the Malay world. Yeah. Yes. So how did your interest in Malay food culture begin? Were you always interested in it? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Kamunglam. And mm-hmm. as you know, Kamunglam is the sort of the, the, the epicenter, the, the urban cosmopolitan uh, setting for sort of a, a Singapore Malay. You know, that's always been the epicenter. Um, and in many ways, Singapore, you know, it's like the, the New York of the Santara of the Malay world. You know, judging by, you know, it's um, the, the publication book, you know, all the publishing houses, the printing houses. And Singapore was also the, uh, uh, the disembarkation point, you know, the embarkation and disembarkation point of the Hajj. So you could be from Chuanchou, China. You could be from Mindanao or you could be from Java. It's always been Singapore is the place that you go to before you head on to the Red Sea for your mm-hmm. Hajj. So that, that's the other play, the role that Singapore played. And of course, later on, you know, Singapore was instrumental in the uh, sort of in the performing arts in a, as a performing arts center uh, in the region, whether it is um, acting, I mean, the movies or whether it's in recording. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that, for example, HMV, you know, very early on, it was, had us in a studio in Singapore mm. and, re- and recording in Malay. Being in being in Singapore, uh, being in that growing up in Kampung Glam, mm. 
Um, you know, you you you've exposed to so many things. Uh, the, the you're exposed to the pluralism that you experience every day. Uh, the variety of food and all the various arteries of food preparation and food, you know, incubation, so to speak. Um, so I feel that this has to be documented. Yeah. Um, I feel that there is also, if we look at, you know, I live, I live in the States for 12 years. Mm. I live in the Bay Area and we know the Bay Area is, is very, very diverse. Uh, and I started the first culinary club in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's not about free makan, but it's about, about learning other cultures. What better way for young people to learn about other cultures than through food? Mm. Uh, be Vietnamese or Ethiopian or Greek. So, and then of course, naturally, the student would ask me, being me myself being the person in charge of the club, you are Malay. What's Malay food? Mm. What makes Malay Malay food? You know, what's so Malay about Malay food, right? Mm. All questions like that. But because you know, you live you, you live in sort of a you know a, a place like Bay Area, you 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 can have access to, let's say, University of Berkeley uh, Southeast Asian Library collection, and you can walk into a secondhand bookstore and pick up something. Yeah, by Winstead or Wilkinson, things that so because I am acutely aware there is a dearth on Malay gastronomy, like a dedicated book. We don't have that, mm. but what we have are nuggets embedded in uh, travelogues, in hikayat, yeah, in British administrators' uh, report. So it's all through this material that I, I managed to amass mm. uh, through the secondhand bookstores in Berkeley and put together. And of course, you know, and that's not enough. That's only one part of, uh, you know, collecting material in order to write something. Mm. Uh, like in this case, with writing about Malay food, I feel there's a need to, to do more research, to, to dig out more books, uh, buy books, to interview, to get empirical evidence from, you know, old people while they're still around. So you talked about the lack of documentation of Malay gastronomy. So what do you think accounts for this? Well, I think you know it's like it, so Malay culture is pretty much an oral culture. Mm. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever, for example, a great grandmother knows how to make the best dodol. It's not recorded; it's passed down. You say it's 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 the practical experience. Yeah, and and you know, with time, you know, you sort of you know you internalize it. So there's really there's no really you know solid documentation. And then here comes you know, the, the 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 British you know colonial you know, masters and the observing, the watching what people were eating, how they were prepping, looking at techniques, looking at all the various you know kitchen implements and tools, and they recorded it. So today, a researcher like myself, you know, I mean, we benefited from that. So you took about 10 years to write this entire book. So what do you think are the most distinctive traits of Singaporean Malay food that you have discovered? You know, we tend to think that, you know, especially in today's context, is that, you know, we talk about, oh, that's Malaysian, or this is Singapore, that's Indonesia, or this distinctively Singapore. But is it really distinct? On one hand, I think there's so much in common. And we all know, you know, in 1824, the entire Malay world was carve out, yeah, 1824, between the Dutch, you know, and, and, the, and the British, and it, it created two different uh, sphere of influences. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty much the same, the same, you know, you're talking about the same environment, the same flora and fauna, the same mm. understanding, right, the same, same ancestors, uh, you know, if you sort of never left the, the region. But with time, maybe we were to apply the modern day sort of uh, nation state, you know, lenses, yes, we tend to say, oh, 
yeah, what is what is Singapore food? What is Malaysian food? Well, there are. Yeah, there, definitely there are some certain distinction. You know, it's just like just like mm. you're traveling, you know, in Italy, right? There's a common Italian sort of a cuisine. But we also know there are regional specialties. Here. You go to Umbria, there's something, something different from Venezia. So there are different. So in, likewise in Singapore, well, there are so a lot of things in common. But we, as a young nation, as a, as a very sort of a very cosmopolitan, very urban, having the... Uh, we have that affluence, the accessibility to food, and sing. and if we were to look, for example, I just would, if you look at a Port Master report of eighteen twenty, the food produced that made its way to Singapore as a collecting and a distribution point, we'd be amazed at the variety. So this is exactly the setting that the people in Singapore, right, and Singapore Malays uh, in particular, since we're talking about Singapore Malays. That have absorbed these ingredients and make it their own. Mm. What are some of these dishes? A good example, uh, example that I always use is misiam. Yeah, with the name like misiam. You know, could that be from Thailand because it's siam? Well, misiam, of course, the vermicelli. Yeah, 1820. I don't know. We have how many pickles? I have to look at the numbers of the dry because it, it, it travels well. Mm. Uh, it's dry, dry noodle that made its way to the ports of Singapore. So we've already been exposed to misiam the noodle, mm. not misiam the the dish. But with time, you know, people with the, we've been bringing with them, you know, their prior knowledge, uh, you know, experimenting, and we know after many generations we get the misiam that we have today. Yeah, that's true. So you were talking about how Singapore now is really cosmopolitan and really modern, and I was reading an article about foraging that you wrote. Um, so how how do you think? Um, urbanization and globalization has has had an impact on Malay food in Singapore. Right. So our understanding of food is pretty much pretty much based on our surrounding. We eat what is available. Mm. So may it be your front yard, you know, where you you know at, at low tide you'd be able to forage for shellfish. Or you know, given that we are maritime people, you know, we have sort of you know, we have the the, the uh, intimate knowledge, you know, of the, in the fishing, right? What fish? The fish seasoned, where to get what fish, what do you do with excess fish, uh, all the varieties of dishes that you could create out of fish. Yeah. So that has changed, right? And we all know that you know fishmen now live in flats. Well, or at least descendants of fishmen they live in flats today. And also, you know, in the past, people you know really, really before before the advent of markets. People, you know, even with markets around, certain things are grown in the wild or semi, you know, or semi-cultivated. So you leave your, you know, the comfort of your home you know, to to forage. And this is one of the things that I want to share with you, Pamelia. We look at the word ingredient. The word ingredient in Malay is ramuan. So, regardless of what you're preparing, and the, the ingredient is that's ramuan. But ramuan comes from the word ramu. And ramu means forage. So ramuan in the ingredient is what uh, is that which has been porridge. Oh, that's so fascinating! I never knew that. Yeah. So, so there's this huge sense of eating from your environment, right? Like this whole concept of eating ulam that has been, I feel, a bit lost through through the years. Do you feel the same? Uh, absolutely. And indeed, if you were to look at the root word of ulam, is an Austronesian term. Um, Let's take a look at the sort of you know. Let's take a look at like in the um, the northern extension of the Malay world, and that's the, the what is today the Philippines. We call the Philippines. Uh, the main dish 
that to go with the rice is called ulam. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. So, but so the ulam has always been central. If you look at a Malay diet historically, mm. has always been past what we call today very fancy in you know, a stylish name we call it pescatarian. <laughs> yeah. The Malays have always been pescatarian. I mean, you know, we maritime people, right? You know, we, we so it's always been fish. Mm. Uh, you know, your daily food is fish and greens, and there's so many ways of working with greens. So you could get your greens from from the wild, yeah, uh, you know, in, in from the forest or secondary forest, or you can get your greens if you grow in your in your front yard or backyard. What can you do with all the greens? You know, you could make your ulam, yeah, ulam. That's ulam typically refers to raw. Some that's raw. You can make your krabu. That's your salad. Yeah. Uh, you can make your gulai lemak if you cooked it in a broth of coconut milk. You can make, make it a consomme. Like if you do it in like it's a clear, it's a clear you know, vegetable uh, soup. You can have a certain uh, acidity in it, and it becomes sayur asam. Uh, you could blanch it. You know, you could saute it. You could pickle your greens when you have excess. You could wrap it up and bake. And becomes your pies. You can wrap it up and steam becomes your boto boto, and you can use it for garnishing. Of course, your flavoring as well. Of course, you know you, if you want a certain aroma, a certain flavor. So there's so much to do. Hence, that was the impetus for me to include uh, not only a lease of Flora Malaysiana in the glossary in my book, but also another lease of uh, of all the ulams. And many of them have been forgotten because. To answer your question, you know, we have lost that that, uh, that surrounding. But that said, I am heartened by this renewed interest among young people, uh, you know, you know, activists from say the Nature Society, uh, to want to start planting again, right? In you know, in HDB you know estates, there are plots. People are planting their own small vegetable garden, the herbal garden. People are growing in pots in the HDB corridors. Yeah. Um, yeah, people are trying to find out where could we possibly forage, right? Of course, you have to begin by you know understand to be able to identify, be able to be able to, able to understand the nomenclature. Yeah, I really love that. There is this school in Malaysia called the Ulam School. I'm not sure if you have heard of them, but they are doing like fantastic work to document all of the regional produce because there are quite a lot of overlaps between every country, right? Like in in Vietnam, in Thailand. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that we probably want to take a look. One, of, one of my, one of my hopes, uh, you know, now that the book is out, is to have a conversation and ultimately work on codifying the you know, South Asian uh, food. Yeah, and I feel that you know Malay food culture is so artisanal, but people don't recognize that. I think a while ago I was having a chat with one of my friends, Harrell. Um, his parents were actually tempeh makers in Singapore. His grandparents actually used the simple leaves to ferment and to um, get the spores, the, the culture for making tempeh. It was so fascinating. I was like, why is no one actually, you know, talking about these kind of things more often? You're right. You know, pretty much artisanal, you know, it's, it's home-based. Um, mm. People have sort of this, you uh, uh, a tested understanding of how to prepare, how to preserve 
yes, very much artisanal. And by extension, when we look at uh, our understanding of Malay food, it's typically based on sort of narrow window, and that is the hawker center. Mm. So you need to, you know, when you get a chance to visit Malay homes and you know, or you you visit your Malay 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 neighbors, Malay friends, and there that is where you get to see things that you don't normally experience. If our first encounter of Malay food is the the food center, not that is not that you know not I mean with the food center the food center has its role. The food center plays an important role indeed, actually. Mm. Uh, but if our first encounter is that sort of a a, a limited so you know, say uh, spread, and that tends to be our reference point. But if we get a chance to say hang out with you know, your friends and neighbors and travel the region. Mm. The food of Singapore, you know, really pretty much is a sort of almost representative of the food of the region, given Singapore and the Malay mix, mm. you know, all the various sub-ethnic groups. Yeah. Um, so that will, that will sort of form how not just individuals look at Malay food, but the media itself, mm. how we look at Malay food. I think reading and traveling helps to inform and with that, you know, we understand um, so, so the, the, the diversity and the, the beauty and, and, and look at Malay food as something that's really based on what I shared with you earlier about the Pax Pescatarian. is a very healthy diet. Mm. Well, you know, any food you eat in excess, you know, it's, yeah. it's bad, right? Regardless of what, what's your background and ethnicity or geography, any food that you eat in mm-hmm. excess is bad. But you look at Malay diet, yeah, it's it's very much about going back to nature. It's about connecting with the connecting with, the, with your your surrounding. Mm. Yeah. So, and and I think the media media would be would be helpful for the media to uh, to sort of to to understand that uh, to understand that you know we when we consume uh, you know we enjoy Malay food, we are enjoying the region. Mm. Do you think that there are differences in the way that Singaporeans perceive Malay food and Peranakan food? Um, I, I was seeing debates on the Nasi Ambeng um, incident with, with Violet Un, right? Um, and I, I had a lot of Malay friends who were talking about how there is not enough acknowledgement when it comes to Malay cuisine as being kind of like a mother cuisine to Peranakan cuisine. So I was wondering what you thought about that. This is not a very... Uh, uh, um easy topic to talk about um, but I think sometimes sometimes something's that's un- something that's sort of uh, uncomfortable in a situation you know, is it's good to have a conversation because it will it will sort of it will, it will foster growth mm. yeah so as a, let's so let's talk about this let's take a look at the term pranakan mm. yeah what is pranakan so pranakan the concept of pranakan um, pranakan is a Malay word Created by the Malays for a Malay concept, so in a very in a, in in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a region whereby we we you know we we are sort of between two major civilization, uh, Chinese and Indian civilization, and later on we experienced in the exchange, uh, exchange Islamicus, mm-hmm. whereby um, you know we we have people from you know, the Near East and Middle East made its way to our part of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It not only brought religion, but it brought a way of life, the way of a different way of eating as well. Yeah. And then we have the uh, Europeans coming our way uh, to, you know, to in search of spice, and this being the cradle of spices. Yeah. So 
imagine the, the confluence of all these people right during the age of trade. So all this, all this men travel, not women. Many of these men ended up settling with local women. So the mother is a Nusantara mother. Social learning theory tells us it's always the mother, right? You know, what you wear, what, how you talk, your, your speech, what you wear, uh, especially the girls, because the girls have the reference, mother as a reference point. The, the boys maybe mm. look up to their father, who might be an Arab, who might be a Dutch man, might be someone from, from Fuchen, uh, it could be a, a man from Tamil Nadu. But the mother is a local mother. So you eat what your mother cooks. So, and hence, you know, it's to give rise, to give birth to the Pranakan culture. So it's a very, it, to me, it's a very beautiful concept. It's a very, you know, it's an embracing concept instead of looking at you as the other or different, but they recognize that you are a child of the womb. That's what Pranakan means. You are a child of the region through your mother. That's so poetic. Yes, yes. It is the, the, the original mother the, the early maternal roots are here. So that's why the, the food that we consume is pretty much the same, right? That said, if the father comes from, from Fuchian, you understand how to eat your mushroom. You probably want to have your pork in your rawond mm. to make the kamri no, you know, to babi bohklua, mm. right? So it's a, that sort of thing happens, you see? So that's one, that's one aspect. So the Pranakan in Singapore tends to be, you know, people tend to think that it's just Chinese Pranakan. But the reality is that there's a whole spectrum of you know, Pranakan groups. Like the Indian Pranakans? Indeed, yes, yes. The Indian, Indian Pranakan, the Arab Pranakans, mm. and so on. And like in all hybrid culture, if we would, I mean, when we travel, I mean, and any, any bona fide foodie uh, who's interested in food, or uh, hybrid food for that matter, uh, if let's say it's made of A and B, now we'll be, we are able to unpack what's A and what's B. And sometimes this hybrid community are actually consuming exactly the same as A or exactly mm. as B, right? It's not really. So when that happened, as in the case, uh, let me give one example. Uh, let's take a look at Kueh Putri Salat. You know, it's something that's consumed, you know, you travel from Kalimantan all the way to Aceh you see the same idea of eating srikaya with your glutinous rice. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice sort of you know, uh, uh, balance between sweet custard and your sort of savory, you know, uh, uh, sticky rice. So that, that's, around, that's been around for a very long time. So the problem is this, when you claim sole authorship, that's, that's problematic, mm-hmm. say. But if, if, it's, if it's understood, they say, yes, we, you know, we Pranakans, we eat putri salad, it is Pranakan food. There's no denying about that. Yeah, because the, the early maternal roots are all this new, new Santara women. Everybody knows how to make srikaya with sticky rice. Yeah, but when you market it you know, as, as, as a soul, uh, you know, this is, this is a, it has a soul authorship uh, and with no mention you know, of the, the root, with no mention of its, its origin, or without looking around your left and right to see what other people are eating, that can be problematic. Yeah. And so through the writing of this book, how do you hope to foster a deeper understanding of Singaporeans about Singaporean Malay food? Or how do you hope to overturn some misconceptions that people have about the cuisine? I have a chapter dedicated to food as medicine. And I, I began by saying there is, there is an old adage in the Malay world that goes like this. 
Why eat medicine? Why not eat food that becomes medicine? So that's one of the things that one of the takeaways I would like people, you know, to, to you know, to uh, get from the book, uh, to look at, you know, the celebration of food as not just for, you know, for sustenance of so food, mm. uh, also for the, that that's important in your celebration, but food as as a source of good for good health. So that's one thing, and and I hope by looking at this the the, the book, people see the richness. People see the creativity in Malay food, uh, how Malay food is celebrated in in songs, in literature, uh, in, in poetry. Uh, how look, looking at how uh, the Malay attach food to symbolism, uh, to mythology. So you talked about food from a health standpoint. Do you mean like a more holistic approach to eating, or do, are you referring to something more specific like jamu and ulam? Both, both of them. So it could be food in the form of jamu, mm. or food in the form of uh, ulam, and also your your when you, your concoction of your let's say your broth. So you're you're making a particular say you know fish broth, let's say, but you know the, what the ingredient that goes into that, and you know the efficacy and the potency of uh, of the food. And also one of the things that I included in the book is to know uh, the do's and don'ts, or rather. The, the the classification of of food when you talk about food as medicine, uh, is this is this uh, uh, is this food that's the heaty food? Is it a cooling food? Is it a food that you know cause you know sort of a uh, uh, that's 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 that is co- that is caustic? Let's say let let's say I have, I have I have a cut right, and some some foods that I cannot consume like crustacean. There's some some components in the crustacean that will cause the itchiness. Uh, after labor, right? Uh, you know, the other things is to just stay stay away from. You know, you just because it's not compatible because you've gone through, uh, you know, this you know uh, birth, and you know you, you can't you can you cannot you're not supposed to consume it because it's detrimental to your well being. You know, your recovery. You know, uh, as as a young mother. Yeah, I find that very fascinating because a lot of Asian cultures have such a huge link uh, between food and holistic health, right? I mean, yes, like, you yes, know, yes. in Chinese cuisine, there's always this like cooling and heaty kind of concept. And in Indian food, there is this huge idea of Ayurveda that governs everything that you eat. So, I mean, we've talked quite at length about your book and about, you know, all these concepts. I would love to find out a little bit more about you as a person. So can you tell me about how you decided that this would be your career or your life's work? There's something about food. Food food has a tendency to connect people, yeah? You know, rather than, you know, sort of, you know, push people apart. Um, and there's so much that we, there's, I'm, I'm sure in, in food, we they see so much in, that we have in common. And I have this insatiable curiosity about the genealogy of food. So when I travel, um, I travel quite a bit. My, one of the first places that I would go to, apart from museum, would be markets. Market as you know, is a place where I, it provides me a window of the local people, lifestyle, you know, and 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 what people consume. So mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated by by food, you know, the history behind food, uh, the, the the culture, the you know, the, the traditions that's attached to food, and you know, growing up in also in in Gedong Kuning and and in Kamangalam. Uh, I see that residence as like a treasure house of recipes, uh, you know, given to me by the family, sort of in you know, a connection with the larger Malay Muslim world. So very early on, I've been exposed. Uh, in part, you know, I was a, I was a curious kid. 
Uh, you know, and at the same time, I'm, I want to not just enjoy, but I have a lot of questions. And so you started out by asking your parents about, you know, certain parts of the Malay food culture? Indeed. And my mom was also a, a cooking teacher. So that, that helps. Uh, you know, and growing up in a house with where there are 42 other people, uh, with four kitchens, with so mm. many grandmothers and the aunties, and, you, and, and all the celebration because we, there was a matriarch in the, in the matriarch in the house. So we've been, been exposed to very early on. And, you know, you get curious about how do you prepare certain food beyond just mm. simply enjoying and saying, oh, this is delicious. So what goes yeah. into the food? Yeah. So you were always involved in the kitchen and you knew how to prepare certain dishes? I think I, I was nine when I helped my grand aunt, you know, how to fry the surrounding, you know, from start to end. Wow. You know, over, over you know, charcoal, you know, stove. And, and, this, and about that time, same time too, I wanted to know how I could bake cupcakes. <laughs> so I, I was taught, yeah, I was, I was taught, you know, the very early, just with a, with a bowl and a fork, this mm. whole idea of one, one, two, two, one egg, one tablespoon of butter, two sugar and three flour. And then, of course, you could, you know, you could embellish it with your chocolate rice or your, your raisin that you get from the mama shop, you know, mm. you know next door. Um, I'm really you know, very, very fortunate, you know, to, to you know, to, uh, to, to have that, the experience of, you know, be, being raised in, a, in, in Kampung Galamt. You know, uh, that within, say, a space of one kilometer square, um, we see different kinds of food being produced. Uh, we see, I see this whole area as a creative hub. People were experimenting. So many recipes, new ideas that came out of this, this place that I call my stomping ground. Mm. And how do you think Kampung Glam is today compared to how it used to be? Surprisingly, it has sort of, a, we see a sort of a revivalism, I mean, sort of, um, within Kampung Glam when it comes to F&B. Mm. Uh, but never in my wildest dream, I would imagine there's going to be a great Italian restaurant in, a, in my backyard along Kandahar Street. Uh, you know, it, it's always been, it's always been uh, sort of in, in Malay Muslim sort of fair. Uh, we get lots of Indian food uh, on Kandahar Street. That's one artery, you know, lined with so many things, you know, from you know, with, with a whole spread of curry, uh, yogurt in terracotta pots, fried pigeon, chapati, your appam, your paratha. They're all on one street. That's Kandahar Street. Mm. And then we have Bustra Street. Uh, that's uh, I, that has been dubbed as the the, the incubator for all the kueh in Singapore. So my reference point when you talk about kueh has always been uh, Bustra Street. In every house, have their own own speciality, and they're also creating you know new new recipes that with time becomes sort of heritage food. Um, so and then beyond that, you know, we have Jalan Sultan. That is the original home for your mutton chop and your soup tulang. I love that. Yeah, and we we had in the past the Kamogalam, we had things like nasi dal, which is really you know sort of extinct in Singapore. Imagine what is that nasi dal? That lentil, yeah. So mm. nasi basmati rice cooked with clarified butter, you know, infused with all the spices and speckled with golden lentils. Mm. So that's that's gone, and then so we also had mi 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 odong mi mi odong. So it's actually mi odong is a corruption of the udon. So there, there, so there was there was a Malay family that used to work with the Japanese, and you know there was one of the speciality people you know from uh, from from Johor would come down to Singapore to experience mi mi odong, but mi odong is gone now. Mm-hmm. So 
So we, 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 we lost that. But at the same time, in Kamangulam, it seems to be that is the place for you if you want to open a halal restaurant. Uh, we, we see all the bakeries and there is, uh, you name it, from, from Wagyu to ramen to Vietnamese pho um, to French food, uh, of course, Middle Eastern, all in Kamangulam today. So it's interesting to see how it has again become sort of a, a, a halal food hub. Mm. And how do you think the Malay people's interactions with food have shifted or changed uh, from the time when you were younger to now? I always feel that Malay food has this stereotype of being laborious and time-consuming. And um, maybe a lot of people might not be cooking it as much as they used to. Um, so how do you perceive this shift? I, th- I think it's happening everywhere, right? Mm. You know, people are you know, busy with their, sort of their daily grind and... Um, People are spending less and less time. We are seeing this, I think, pretty universal, less and less time preparing food. Um, yes, Malay food tends to be laborious, uh, but again, uh, it is a choice. Uh, a choice that you could, you could use your, you could use your food processor where, uh, you know, the, the machine chops as opposed to using your batu gilling where you actually pulverize your ingredients. Mm. So, um, it's, it's, it's a choice that, you know, and I think because if you, people are just, you know, occupied with, you know, sort of daily, you know, sort of work and, um, yes, people are spending less time. Uh, but again, um, you could you could find time. I mean, I, I, I'm in, some, in many ways, I'm a purist. I mean, while, while I love innovation, I want to try out new things, I celebrate bright new ideas, but certain, 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 and for certain things, I want to retain that, that, that flavor, yeah, that, that way of cooking. You, you were talking about how embedded Malay cuisine or food culture is within nature, right? Within um, concepts of foraging, of using what you have. So how do you think um, Singaporeans can adopt that kind of ethos in this modern day and age? I think, we, and you, know, you know how those days, you know, people are also looking into uh, consuming this, what's organic. So that's, that's, that's one way. But I think in terms of having the opportunity to uh, space to forage, you know, we are pretty much, uh, you know, we, we, we are pretty much limited. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But that said, you know, we can still, you know, uh, look at food that's, that's sustainable, uh, that's it's what is in season, celebrate what's in season, to, you know, to, to not waste any parts of a, uh, a particular kind of I don't know, ingredient. Mm, so true. We, those are things that I think we, it's within our reach that we could do. So, what are some of your hopes for Singaporean food culture, or what kind of change would you like your book to spark? First of all, I'd like to see sort of renewed interest among young people uh, about traditional food of you know, yeah, um, and um, I, I want people. I would like to see. The sense of this, this fostering of a sense of pride you know, of one's gastronomic tradition, and um, to see that there's there's also this this idea of a, a shared culture within you know our, our nation. There's so much that we share, uh, and 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 to start sort of a, a conversation, to looking at the richness you know, of uh, what we have. Mm. I I just cannot fathom how much time and effort has gone into making this book a reality. I can't wait to actually start reading your book. So thank you for what you do and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Pamelia. Thank you for having me. 
That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to K.O. Johari, researcher and author of The Food of Singapore Malays. We now stand at the crossroads where we are witnessing the vanishing of traditional dishes and the gradual erosion of our rich food culture. Now more than ever, it is so important to encourage one another to get back into the kitchen and start cooking food from our heritage. Singapore Noodles is offering a membership dedicated to equipping anyone with everything that they need to start cooking Singaporean food. Visit us at sgpnoodles.com to find out more. Once again, thank you for listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast where we believe in a Singapore in which its people are proud of the rich and diverse food culture that we have and play an active role in keeping our food heritage alive.